You're listening to the Combinate Podcast, a show that connects you to the most important resource in the medical device and pharma industries, its people. My name is Subi Sedate. I'm a bioengineer, and for the last decade, I've sought to broaden my understanding in this industry and have been amazed at the wonderful people I've met and the insights they've given me. Each week, I sit down with leaders to discuss their expertise, the lessons they learned, and continue that mission. Whether you're a student, engineer, scientist, or marketer, you're sure to pick up advice and knowledge that you can apply to make an impact. Now on to the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Combinate Podcast. I'm your host, Supi Sadeh, and we are graced today and honored uh, by Ben Lockwin, um, who has uh, basically the entire letter of the alphabet after his name. Um, ben is a healthcare executive, MMA fighter, jiu-jitsu pro, jiu-jitsu pro uh, quality and regulatory SME, uh, working in medical devices, pharma, and other regulated industries. Um, quite published, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Subi. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, can you talk a little bit about your background? I saw, um, you know, behavioral science and, you know, you, I, I know you, it, it seems like you're sort of a lifelong learner, but I'm just wondering what the, what the weave is like, because it doesn't seem, doesn't seem straight line. Yeah, it's a good question. I, so I've been in the industry for about mm-hmm. a quarter century, uh, including roles in manufacturing operations, QA, R&D, drug development, vaccines and adjuvant development, regulatory work, um, but, you know, I guess thinking about my career trajectory, it, I, it looks very circuitous from the outside, I'm sure, as everybody's seems to. But probably like many people's, it makes sense at the time and uh, each of the discrete moves and changes, you know, as I pick and chose different paths. The overall story kind of can can look deep and complex, but I think the minutiae seem like right decisions made at the right time. Can you, can you dive a little deeper? Because I'm 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 curious. Well, uh, I'm curious particularly in the um, the learning space um, hmm. because uh, I I I know you 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 studied behavioral neuroscience, yeah, right, and um, yeah, yeah I, I'm curious about your educational background because it, it 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 didn't seem um, to me like P- PCHEM. And uh, preventative medicine, you know, th- those things to me aren't going into medical devices and pharma. So I'm just wondering the, mm. the, the jump. Yeah. So, I, all right. So it started out really in astrophysics. And um, I, when I took stock of career options and I thought about my interest in, in all things astrophysics related, it, it, I came to realize that, uh, you know, unless... I moved and worked, let's say, with Jet Propulsion Laboratories at the time, uh, or or just became a professor to carry on the academic tradition. That um, you know, there there weren't at the time a lot of other options. It's interesting now because a lot of tech companies have specifically tried to hire on astrophysicists for uh, some of their approaches with with uh, quantitative sciences. You know, some of the hard sciences to give them different perspectives. Uh, but that didn't really exist a couple decades ago, those sorts of opportunities. So I, I transitioned. Um, at the time, I kind of just figured that 
good science is good science. And, um, you know, whether it's about the universe and all of the, the trappings and interweavings in the universe, whether it's about um, human physiology, the brain, you know, those things all fascinated me. And I think, you know, at the outset, you mentioned lifelong learning. And to me, lifelong learning is a theme that um, really uh, is very important. You know, I think, almost like the maxim publish or die for people who are in academia. I think, you know, as soon as we, we stop actively pursuing learning in our lives, you know, you might as well just pack it in because uh, there's always something new on the horizon and, you know, things evolve. If we think about the challenges that sort of face us today uh, and look back 10 years, 15 years, you know, it was 2007 when the first iPhone came around and, you know, look at in a decade and a half, how much everything has changed simply because of a smartphone. And there's plenty of other technology like that, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always about neuroplasticity and adapting. So I was really big into understanding why people tick. And, uh, you know, I remember a few, you know, kind of discrete moves at the time that I had where I kind of considered why it is that organizations perform well, why do individuals perform well? And to me, it always came back to the people and the interactions with the people. And if I was to be able to really harness that and understand it, uh, I was going to need to understand more about human psychology, uh, the neuroscience of behavior and decision making. And so that was a, a discipline that, you know, I jumped headlong into and I think has served me well because, you know, it's a, a topic that we pretty much all face every day. You know, when we interact with anybody, it all has to do with how our brains do that processing. And uh, so I, I parlayed some of that into um, kind of my early moves in the industry when I was working with uh, different pharmaceutical biotech companies. And uh, again, you know, good science is good science. So there weren't a lot of uh, questions, I guess, early on about, well, how does neuroscience translate into pharma? Because obviously, you know, one of the prime therapeutic areas in pharmaceuticals is neuroscience, neurodegenerative diseases. But early on, I, I didn't work on those therapies. So it was just more of making that connection between the things that interested me and the learning and how I could apply it to my day job. Yeah, and I, I can appreciate that um, a lot there. Uh, learning never exhausts the mind. And uh, I, I was more more uh, really interested in the behavioral part of the neuroscience. I, I thank you for, for uh, taking us through that. Um, now, it seems like you've landed in quality and regulatory. Is that fair? Yeah. Um... Not, not, not to put you in a box, <laughs> but I'm saying like if you were to say uh, sort of a primary um, focus area expertise, that's where you landed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. You know, the whole idea of uh, what does quality mean, and how do we how do we know we've gotten there if we ever really get there, and uh, then how do we sort of sell those ideas and intimations to the regulatory agencies to then get therapies, whether it's a device, whether it's a drug, to the market to help patients. I think that that to me is is important. It um, it reminds me of the tenet in journalism. I think it was originally a, a French tenet but uh, translated is something roughly like uh, it doesn't matter how good your third paragraph mm. is in your article, if nobody reads past the first one. Mm. And I think the same is true, you know, in the drug and device development world, you know, you can have frankly, the, the greatest, most efficacious and potentially safe treatment uh, 
available. But if you don't package that story in such a way where you've monitored quality, you've demonstrated quality, you've been able to then convince the regulatory agencies that everything you intended to do has been done, it's not going to get to market. So it doesn't matter how good your product is if it doesn't pass pass the regulatory bar. What uh what interested in you what interested you in quality? Because you also jumped in head first, it seems like you're you're a six sigma master black belt, right? Yeah. Um so it's not know, like it's not like getting your feet wet. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like yeah, nose diving. Uh that came about a little bit later. So I had done some work in the quality assurance space. Um, and then kind of where that adjacency is with quality control, the QC laboratories testing for therapeutics, whether it be small molecules, biologics. And uh, in in being a part of the quality organization, um, I was offered an opportunity to kind of be one of the founding members of um, a, a, a new division, a nascent division of operational excellence that really hadn't existed before. And, you know, in order to do that, well, uh, obviously, I had to really kind of go back to the woodshed, as it were, and, you know, work on uh, sharpening my personal saw. And that was understanding, you know, all the principles of lean manufacturing and lean production, which principally came from Toyota production system, as well as doing uh, Six Sigma Black Belt and later a Six Sigma Master Black Belt program. And though it became a situation where I was running projects and also managing people, um, I wanted to make sure that I had the credibility to be able to manage well and do it well. And, you know, I, I don't think that the quality discipline, the OPEX discipline is one in which you can do that from arm's length, you know, just create some edicts like thou shalt improve, you know, bring some metrics to me. Let me pick out things that look awry and then go fix them because you then I think don't really understand the right questions to even ask of your employees. So importantly to me, um, it was really about understanding what I didn't know and going through the formal rigor and training so that I was able to ask the right questions and, and probe and go after the right, the right things. You know, as Peter Drucker said, efficiency. <laughs> yeah. So management guru for the listeners, management super guru, Peter Drucker said, uh, efficiency is doing things right and effectiveness is doing the right things. So the, the maybe effectiveness in his mind at the time was more important. So you, you can't do the universe of tasks. So you got to pick only those things that you can accomplish or that you should accomplish, not the other myriad tasks. But then, you know, the other side of the coin is whatever you're going to do, you better make sure you're doing it well, because otherwise you've got rework baked in there. Mm. Um, and, and, and the best way to do something is right first time. Exactly. Actually, funny, fun, funny tangent, the, 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 Peter Drucker is in, and I would say in large part why I started the podcast. I oh. was reading, I was reading Managing Oneself for, for the second or third time, you know, the little booklet. And uh, you know, he he invite he invites the 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 reader to sit, to think about how they learn. And he basically says this thing that floors me every time I read it, but most people don't know how they learn themselves. Yes. And I just I thought and thought and thought about how, you know, I read a lot. Um, you know, but it's, I wouldn't say it's my primary way of learning. I learned by having conversations and asking questions. It's always been that way since I was a little kid. And so I was like, how can I do that? And I, and I, I started the podcast sort of from there, but yeah, I love Peter Drucker and, um, effective executive too. Right. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So, well, and I would suggest too, that in the world of process improvement and good quality, it's like the five whys, asking why or asking questions, asking Socratic questions of people is really the only way you can understand what's going right or what's going wrong. 
Oftentimes, the universe doesn't show you what's behind the veil. You have to really start actively probing. Mm. So how, how do you learn? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I do, when I travel, I do a lot of reading, uh, mostly because, you know, we're, we're in, in some sense confined in a metal tube with wings for several hours. And so there's not much else to do other, other than, you know, writing, review, Netflix. <laughs> yeah, writing, reviewing documents or watching Netflix or whatever. So I oftentimes commit to myself that when I, when I travel for any reason, I bring a book with me. Um, uh, but you know, working in the learning space too, like training and development for, um, different healthcare and pharma companies, one of the, the things that, uh, became apparent and it wasn't really until fairly recently, there was, there has been not just one piece of data, but there has been some good research about how people learn and how they prefer to learn. And it used to be that, uh, training in the industry was about, well, how do we hit the auditory learners, the kinesthetic learners, the visual learners. But again, there's been some pretty excellent research showing that uh, the the whole idea of learning styles is a myth. And people who claim that they learn in one particular way, when given another modality within which to learn, learn equally well when later challenged about it. So um, I guess there's maybe preferences where people think like, oh, well, I'm a, you know, a visual learner. That's what I like to do. But it doesn't really make the learning really any more solvent or or necessarily better. So I um I don't know. I guess I give myself a lot of different avenues. You know, I watch a lot of documentaries, especially when traveling. I do reading when I when I travel, not so much when I'm at home. Um other than, you know, the the daily kind of reading that we all do uh, you know, on the job where we've got to review procedures, documents, things like that. Um and certainly I I learn a lot by doing and asking questions. I think similarly with you, um, I find that unless I probe with with some good questions, open-ended questions, I can never really get to the heart of what I'm trying to understand. And uh, there's there's always answers out there. You know, the, the question is, are we prepared to go about finding the answers in the right way? Yeah, I, I think to, to that end too, that, you know, one thing I found tremendously valuable besides the asking and um and, and getting answers is, you know, I'll ask for a book recommendation or some sort of recommendation to learn mm -hmm. something. And if, if a Ben or someone else that's been on the show tells me, Oh, go read this. I will. And I was actually really interested because you, you had an article about ph pharmacogenomics and Orwell. And I had Marla Phillips on the show a, a few months ago and she, oh, had, yeah. and she had uh, told me her favorite book was animal farm. And so I'm like animal farm. I haven't heard that in a while. So I read it. And then I read 1984 and I finished 1984 actually last week. And so, uh, you know, I'm like primed for this that I was reading your article and I'm like, I never actually thought of that. And you talk about the op opioid, um, uh, mm -hmm. crisis a little bit and how people may uh, get selective access to medicine and things like that. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Go on a tangent. Yeah. Yeah, Marla's a great person, I'll tell you that. Uh, she and I have done some work in the past with uh, the FDA culture of quality work with uh, Xavier University, and uh, I would I would definitely take her book recommendations, um, so I'm glad you did. Yeah, you know, the kind of the crux of that article at the time, uh, thinking about the Orwellian future of pharmacogenomics, is 
if I if I think about precision medicine and personalized medicine, so those are two precise and different terms, but basically the idea is precision medicine could be engineered you know, in, in individually for an individual circumstance, their disease, their disorder. The personalized medicine, um, I think, is one in which different people's genetic makeup would lend themselves to different therapies. Um, some therapies wouldn't be as effective or effective at all, may, may pose more risks. And as we start to uncover more about that, more about where drugs and devices come to that interface with the human and how our personal genetics are involved. I kind of got a little bit worried about what the future might hold for us all, because with all the electronic medical records and electronic health records that exist, you know, there are uh, exabytes of data uh, in healthcare, you know, broadly speaking about lots and lots of people that already currently exist. And some of that is already being used for re real world data and real world evidence analysis. And, um, I, you know, I worry that it, it can be used for nefarious purposes because then you've got a situation where, you know, Subi, I might know maybe too much about you and, you know, what sorts of drugs are more effective for you or less effective for you. And then I can make decisions. Uh, let's say, you know, I'm working at, at the federal level for, for allocation and dispensing of healthcare. I could make decisions about what you should or shouldn't have because of your particular genetic makeup. And I think that starts to, not even starts to, that gets us, you know, midway on a very inclined plane, slippery slope where, you know, people could have medications and, and device therapies withheld from them because of their genetic makeup. They then don't have the right to try, you know, which is uh, a, a separate opportunity that the FDA allows where, you know, if you have exhausted all of their options, there's always the right to try avenue where you could say, you know what, there may be untoward risks or this may not have been approved for a particular condition, but you could try it out. And all those things sort of go away. You know, once we think that we're smarter than we probably are, we get into a situation where um, we say, well, this isn't effective for this person. And we think we know that because of X. And, you know, unfortunately, I think taking away some of the messiness that exists in clinical care and clinical practice, like the anecdote of medicine, which, you know, on one hand, I hate, like to me, the most dangerous words in medicine are in my experience. So you have a cl clinician who says, you know, try this thing. In my experience, it's worked. And the, the plural of anecdote is not data. So even though that physician may have had three, <laughs> three it patients. Took like, it took like, that was like delayed onset joke. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, they, they may have had three patients who responded well to that thing or, or 10 patients or whatever. But those are anecdotes and they're, they're totally rife with bias, obviously, uh, because they're trying something. The patient is uh, 100% confounded with placebo effect. Oh, yeah, I feel much better. Thank you. It was not a rigorous trial. So this, the, the whole idea of in my experience is terribly dangerous in medicine. But at the same time, there are situations where we don't know how every drug is going to interact with every person. And so that right to try, you know, giving people an opportunity to try something when there's no other resort, sometimes the messiness of the data that we don't fully know can show us things that we never thought were potential avenues for success. And so 
I think for us to to start putting down, you know, more iron clad curtains to say this person shouldn't have these treatments because of this genetic makeup. That was really the the thesis of that article. It was uh, there's the potential future which exists, and I hope we don't get to it, where those kind of mandates come down, you know, at a national level or a regional level, because again, you know, we think we broadly speaking, you know, the government, whether it's state government, local, uh, federal government, we we think that we are. Uh, more knowledgeable than we are about the treatments, about who's resistant to them or who's amenable to them. And uh, I would I would rather a future where, you know, we do pursue the good science, but at the same time, the universe is a messy place. And mm. I, th- I think there's always room for a little bit of flux and variability, and just as long as and it's always a balance, as long as you don't go too far onto the other side, which is medical anecdote. Shooting at the hip. Yeah. Um Interesting. Yeah, I think you wrote the article like four or five years ago. Has your, uh, you know, what's your uh, worry heartburn profile around that subject now, since it's had a little bit of runtime? Yeah, I, I guess um, I haven't thought about it in a little while because we still haven't gotten to the point where it's really become an issue. And I, it's one of those time horizons where I thought maybe five years ago, in five years, we'll be more there but I kind of think we're not even more there. And a lot of it, sure, I could blame on the pandemic. You know, two years of pretty much everybody's life kind of was just taken off the table. And that includes good research into good avenues in pharmacogenetics, pharmacogenomics, new and novel drug therapies for different conditions. You know, so many, most clinical trials for everything were put on hold during the pandemic. So I think that pause was uh, obviously a blip in the matrix too. Um but we, yeah, we haven't really marched forward as as far as evolving our landscape to get to that future as as much as I thought we might be yet. So, I think my my forecast is still potentially accurate, and uh, more remains to be seen. So, you know, on one hand, I'm heartened we haven't gotten to that future yet, but uh, I think mean it's we won't. exactly interesting. Um, so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about risk because, you know, it seems like on the, on the one hand, you have your, your quality sort of quality engineering focus area. And mm. then on the other hand, you have sort of compliance, regulatory and risk. And, you know, it looks like as far as I can tell you, you you've published a lot in, in the areas uh, in the uh, risk area and you've worked in both medical device and, and pharma. Yes. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to, to risk broadly and then, you know, maybe we can talk about quality and risk together. But um, what's been your experience sort of in, in that space? Yeah, that's a, that's a place that I love to participate in because, you know, after all this time in the industry, and, and I would say going back about 17 years even, uh, risk has been poorly appraised across the board. It's been poorly understood or misunderstood in a lot of cases. And um, it's not all dire. There are companies that do a tremendous job. A tremendously good job at assessing and appraising their risks, developing risk registries, going after the right things, not after the wrong things. But um, I think there's there's been so much opportunity for uh, almost a couple decades now in the industry. When so, I had the opportunity about 17 years ago to look at early drafts of ICHQ9 uh, on quality risk management, and you know give some input. And that has uh, that really set the stage for the industry where everybody should go. Um, it, it brought a quantitative stance to risk assessments, 
in the pharma industry. And frankly, in the med device industry, I, even though there's 14971, I um, go back to the principles and philosophy of ICHQ9 often. I think so I, I heard that I heard and I Googled it because I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, but I heard that 14971 is what bore Q9. But I couldn't find it anywhere. It makes sense from a timeline perspective. And I would imagine that some of the you know folks that were on um, 14971 were, were on Q9 because it came after historically. But mm-hmm. I could I could and, and they're so similar, but just like tiny little differences. But yeah. Yeah, I, that's a good question. The 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 provenance of it, I I think that's probably true. I don't have a definitive answer, but neither do I. By the way, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's hearsay. There, yeah, there were people early on, like I said, kind of that like seventeen, eighteen years ago time frame, who had been device gurus who then had a chance to kind of say, hey, uh, you know, this ICH document needs a little help, needs a little work. Again, it is interesting. They're obviously very similar. I think 14.971 is more operationalizable in some sense. Like I think you can almost read it and do it a little bit more transparently. I I feel like, to me anyway, how Q9 is written, like the philosophy of it and how the principles are documented sings to me better. Um, So when I want to go back and reflect on the principles of good risk management, I always would would look at ICHQ9. If I wanted to say thou shalt do the following is when I would look more towards 14971. But uh, yeah, in any case, um, they're both doing what they should be doing for both the pharma side and for the medical device side. And and the gray space is a little bit of a challenge. So there's a lot of differences in how com- the, the how of, of how companies are applying the tools across many organizations. And I think that's fine. You know, most of the requirements in FDA's Code of Federal Regulations subparts are very gray spaces. And that's a good thing because they allow sufficient leeway for organizations to either prosper or to hang themselves with improper practice. Now, on one hand, I sort of wish we required greater standardization across the industry with some of the approaches so that everybody is approaching CGMPs the same way or risk management the same way. But you know, maybe going back to our earlier discussion point too, if you think about it, the fact that there is leeway in how we can approach these these principles and, and tactics, that's where innovation takes hold. So expanding on the gray space is where new ideas really can flourish. And that's a long run good thing. So by not codifying, every company must do the following. It allows companies to say, all right, let's come up with, you know, our own you know, the AstraZeneca way of doing this or the Roche model of this or the Eli Lilly way of approaching this. And, you know, over time, those become innovation differentiators and uh, the companies that that do better at it, you know, could be more successful in their future pursuits. So I I do appreciate that gray space. But I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I had hoped early on to carry over into some of the principles of uh, risk management in the industry, again, going back 18 years, um, some of the early models that I would talk about on some of the working groups and committee meetings were from NASA, JPL, Near-Earth Asteroid, Near-Earth Object Program, NEOs. And they have the the Torino and Palermo impact hazard scales. And basically those are methods by which they compute the likelihood that a near-Earth object, an asteroid, a, you know, a, a meteor, some chunk of something in space, 
would not only impinge upon Earth's orbit, i.e. <clears throat> become a potential impactor, but uh, what, what sort of time horizon are we looking at? How big is the object? What's the likelihood of outcome of that sort of thing? So they have these things posted. And um, online, you can kind of sift through what the date of impact might be for something. What's the probability of, of the impactor hitting Earth? Thankfully, most of them are very low. But, uh, you know, what I wanted out of that was to bring to the healthcare industry this sense of, you know, why can't we or why aren't we plotting our risks on an XY matrix? Um, and I think, you know, to some sense, that's carried across to varying degrees of success where some companies have really good uh, heat maps, XY grids of, of their different risks plotted. And, uh, you know, I think beyond the tool itself, it allows for really appropriate appraisal and sorting of the risks for different companies and going after what matters most and not going after everything. Because one of the important things to me with risk too is there are always risks in life and in the universe and we can't solve them all. So I think as much as it's important to take care of risks in an organization that could affect product quality, let's say, it's equally important to find out in that ordinal list of risks what the latent risks are. You got to cut a threshold somewhere and you say these 32 items on this list, we're not even going to touch. And that's not bad risk management. That's better risk management because then you're focusing on what's above that line, which are the more critical ones, which goes back to Peter Drucker. Yeah. I really, I really like something you said, because I think in, in my, in my experience, it's sort of like a, a almost a dichotomy on, on the medical device side. It's more prescriptive. And so it's clear when risk assessments sort of must be done. And with that, they're still typically done well. It's just, it's a, a deliverable activity. Whereas, yeah. uh, which, which means it's, it's, it's done as, as, a, as an exercise, yes, but it's done because it needs to be completed. I've seen when ICHQ9 is followed, it's like, oh, we should do a risk assessment. And so it becomes much more of a thought exercise. And, and like you said, risk register and so on. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just wondering just from a, from an operational standpoint, because 14971 has 24971, which is the, the guidance behind it. Is there mm -hmm. any type of um, hard guidance around or hard, or, I mean, harder guidance around Q9 or is it m more left, uh, you know, to the individual company to, to put that together? Yeah, more left to the individual company. Um, 24971 2020 for yeah. devices, you know, allows that implementation of the risk management system. And I think for better or for worse, the the analog of that doesn't exist on the pharma side, um, yeah. which, you know, has driven to some degree, I think the regulatory agency is a little bit crazy because some of this stuff could have been solved. Um, but at the same time, one, it gives them something to ask about during their inspections, not that they run out of things to challenge, but yeah. uh, um, it, it, it's, it's definitely a leading indicator for, for organizations during an inspection in the dozens and dozens that I've seen and been a part of where the inspection body asks to see a list of deviations, a list of capos, a list, list of complaints, you know, regardless of whether we're talking device side or drug side. And then they want to see what the risk management system looks like. And it, it can not only be a gotcha thing, like, all right, well, let's see your risk management system now. You know, how are you doing this? And they know it's not going to be perfect. So companies do a lot of hand wringing. Oh, yep, here it is. And here's why we're doing this thing. And I think organizations should be a little bit more across the board, you know, generally speaking, uh, confident in presenting it because 
you know, the way the, the, the guidance generally guidance, loosely speaking is, is are written. They aren't a hundred percent prescriptive. So they want companies to be able to do what's right for them. So I think um, it, it gives them a way to challenge the organization to see where their head's at as far as culture of quality. Um, you know, you can often tell pretty quickly by looking at your deviations, complaints, kappas, risk register, risk registry, you know, your your systems of record. Are Is this organization doing the right thing when no one's looking? And that's, to me, really what good quality is. And uh, it tells a lot about the, the, to me, the directionality of the organization. And I think, you know, from what I've heard from uh, regulatory inspectors, FDA and also rest of world, that uh, that's one of the things that they try to challenge and look for. Is this company doing what they need to be doing, even though for the past year, two years, whatever, nobody's asked them about it. And so it shows that that companies and individuals in the functions have done their homework. And the, the the heat map that you were talking about is that different than like the P one P two probabilities? Uh, I um, I'm going to look into that hazard scale that you mentioned from from NASA. I think that's pretty cool. But um, can you maybe elaborate just a tiny bit more on that? And then we'll yeah, on. yeah. So depending on how how advanced um, companies are with their individual platforms for assessing risk for documenting risk, they oftentimes we'll come up with an XY plot and sometimes a bubble chart. So not only do you have an X axis and a Y axis, but then you also have the size of the bubble when plotted on the axis, which is a third variable. Uh, and some organizations, depending on what software, what platforms they're using, uh, transform these into uh, more what would classically kind of be a heat map. So again, it's plotted on XY coordinates, but then the color density on it, or, you know, the, not only the density and saturation of color, but different shades, you know, blue to red kind of thing, uh, gives an indicator in the, in the facility or in, um, different functional areas where their issues tend to uh, impinge upon good, yeah, good quality. And Understood. so I think, uh, it, it, to, to me, it's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Edward Tufte, but to me, the, <laughs> I don't, so he wrote what are called the principles of analytical design. He's got uh, five books out and he used to run a lot of seminars uh, kind of annually. He would do a, a few stops, tours across the country and explain what a good chart or plot was, you know, why a time series plot for this is is good versus this, this uh, pie chart is terrible for this use kind of thing. He's famous for saying the only thing worse than a pie chart is two pie charts. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you got kind of got a sense of his personality from that, but, um, I, I tend to think the reason I bring him up is, is, uh, it's, it's probably what he would consider chart junk to go after a really slick platform and do, you know, a heat map or some sort of three-dimensional plot for risks when you don't really need much more than, uh, like I said, a simple ordinal list or, you know, a list that you can then sort for in some direction that is important for you and your organization. It doesn't have to have, a, you know, a tremendous amount of visuals. Now, visualizing data, as we know, is super important and can show you in the architecture things you may have overlooked. But I think, you know, beyond a simple visual representation, we can all kind of get uh, tied up in you know, going after the more, the more fancy visual representative approaches rather than just going after what matters. Got it. Um, uh, can you just talk briefly about your uh, experience with combination products? 
Because I know, yeah. you know, you you um, you were head of quality basically at Lumicell, right? Yes. Yep. Um, so combination products, I've worked on uh, several and some as a as a consultant when I ran a consulting company. Um, I my my experience goes in the oncology space. So as you mentioned at Lumicell, it's a combination product, which is uh, an injectable fluorescent dye with um uh, a, a handheld optical scanner, essentially, that in real time is able to show. So when a, when a woman has had um, a lumpectomy procedure, so has had um, tumor lumps removed in her breast tissue, in the cavity, oftentimes there are, are microtumor environments, small pieces of tumor, uh, tumor cells that are left over. And essentially that that combination product allows for the real-time detection visually, going back to, you know, visuals can sometimes be the most potent form of knowledge, uh, allows for real-time detection inside the breast cavity of any any tumor cells that are remaining that may not have been taken out with the lumpectomy procedure. So then there can be additional tissue revisions made um, where those are then looked at for pathology to see if, you know, the, the device actually was capable of picking up additional tumor cells that may have been left in the breast cavity so that you don't get sewn shut and then find out later, oh, we're, you know, we're sorry to say that, you know, the cancer has returned or we didn't get it all. So that, that was kind of uh, how that combination product worked. And, you know, uh, I think overseeing quality for the organization, um, as in any organization, was a great challenge, you know, not least of which was because the technology was uh, incredibly and is incredibly innovative, but has the potential to help so many patients who otherwise uh, may ha may have heard or may be hearing in the future a different outcome that they don't necessarily have to hear. And uh, I think what was important um, to me was to not only support the, that that technology um, and the patient population that it can help serve, but I like in every role and, and trying to be a lifelong learner, there is always so much that we don't understand going into a new challenge, into a new role. I've worked on auto injectors um, for diabetes treatment. So insulin auto injectors and um, epinephrine auto injectors and other auto injector devices, combination products. And, uh, you know, I think across the board, when I, when I look at the combination products that I've, I've, helped shepherd through different parts of the regulatory process and helped to create and defend quality systems. There, there is always so much that you kind of feel at the end of the day is left undone. And what if I had done this? What if I had done that? But again, we can't do everything. So we've got to pick those things that are the most important. Um, and so it, it really does come down to, again, our discussions about uh, understanding risks that exist in different parts of the process, the documentation processes, the supplier part of the whole life cycle, you know, so much of combination products involve what is the supplier's role in this? Have we, you know, appropriately audited them? Do, do we understand what risks there are that exist uh, on the supplier side of the equation, on the manufacturing side of the equation? Um, as far as combination products, you know, where drug and device interface. There's the drug piece, which could be, you know, a CEDAR or CBER submittable sort of uh, situation versus the CDRH device component. And 
the the different divisions of the FDA look at things differently. So I think it's a it's a tremendously rewarding part of my career, you know, to be able to kind of put myself in the FDA's shoes and, and, and divisionally as well and think, you know, what is most important? What what will they consider to be the risks here, uh, to be good quality here? And uh, really to, to put in the hard work of, of trying to not only predict that, but to use the trial data to help build and support the story. And again, doing things right. Um, I think combination products are on one hand, the best of both worlds. And on the other hand, you know, they, they present the burden and the challenge of having really two different worlds collide. Um, you know, it's not often that, uh, people from the pharma side of the industry go work in medical devices. And it's not often that medical device folks work on the pharma side of things. And uh, so the, the combination products that exist in our industry are people who are frankly doing both. Yeah. We're like the, 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 the cream in the middle of an Oreo, but the, you know, the, the one thing that I wanted to say about, you know, that first part that where you were talking about, of you know, taking inventory backwards and, and thinking, you know, oh, I, I wish I did that or this, so on. One of the, you know, we talked about quality is free a little bit. When I, when I read that book, he talks a lot about conformance to requirements being quality, which everybody knows, right? But he, uh, he, he used an example of if a Cadillac meets the requirements of a Cadillac, it's a quality car. And if the Pinto meets the requirements of a Pinto, it's a quality car. Pinto. And so, you know, for me, that, that really quelled my, you know, that feeling that I used to have, because it's like, if that deliverable or that document or that exercise meets the requirements of that exercise, then it is a quality deliverable. It's not like a, you know, go backwards. And if I had the learnings that I had now and so on. So that, that really helped me out. Yeah. yeah um, you, got, you got time for a quick story? On, I, on... I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as cars are concerned, so <laughs> At its at its most basic quantitative level, to me, quality is the relentless pursuit of zero defects uh, in any endeavor. It's Philip Crosby. And if you show me a car, some people would tend to agree in the general public that that's a high quality car, you know, and it's usually by brand. And right. and within brands, there are models that frankly just aren't. You know, look at True Delta, look at Consumer Reports. There are some brands that consistently, you know, Lexus being one of them, Mazda uh, now more than ever being one. They, they have tremendously high quality vehicles, meaning uh, really like a defects per million opportunities kind of thing. Like how many issues are there per car? And, uh, you know, you hope it's less than one. So you don't have a car where you're guaranteed a problem. But uh, I would look at like recall and warranty records for, for different cars and say, well, this is or this isn't high quality, you know, and there are lots of, of vehicles that have loose fittings, oxygen sensor issues, window regulator failures, paint defects. And I would say those cars are not high quality. And many of the most expensive car brands fall into that category. And so my, my quick story was I toured an automobile facility and it was part of like a knowledge information sharing and in, in the Six Sigma world and, and lean, of course, because, you know, lean is, uh, kind of the top of the food chain for the most part as far as, as, far as quality improvement in the auto, the automotive industry. Um, I, so I toured an automo, uh, automobile manufacturing facility for very high-end cars, and there was an employee whose job it was to manually buff out and polish the paint on the hood at the end of the production process. And, and you know, in digging a little bit deeper, it was the right side of the hood. 
And though this, you know, hand touch sounds nice, especially for expensive cars, if you think about it, the only reason that job exists is because there were unaddressed manufacturing defects on the assembly line that led to the paint not being applied by the robotic sprayers properly the first time. So though, you know, the, the manufacturer can say, and we have a, we have a guy on the assembly line who puts a human touch on it. That's not high quality at all. Having human touch there is because it was in fact, very low quality for that particular part of the manufacturing process. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Cause I have, um, you know, my brother-in-law used to work in the, um, uh, what is it called? He used to work on cockpits and, um, mm. you know, in the, I don't know why the word's not coming to me. Like, uh, he worked on planes. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times folks in medical devices and pharma think that because we're regulated, we have to do certain things. And it's like other, other industries regulated or not, they do the same things. Like ISO 9001 from a uh, product realization point of view is not that different than 13485. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's just that's just my spiel. And a lot of the stuff that we do in terms of, you know, you mentioned automotive, like AIAG, you know, test method validation, PPAP and all that stuff, you know, yes. comes, comes comes from there. I guess to to, to end, um, what is something that you're excited about? In general? Yeah, whatever. Uh, well, I guess I'm uh, I'm excited about the. Uh... Images that will come back to us from the James Webb Space Telescope, which is parked at a Lagrangian point in Earth's orbit. So they've they've done a lot of test verification uh, runs, as it were, you know, to put it in our industry parlance to make sure that the mirrors are all aligned. And there was a micrometeorite micrometeor strike on a, a mirror. I think it was on the mirror surface, maybe, but it was more impactful than they thought, even though the thing is designed to withstand some of these. So it's one of those like when Hubble first went up and you kind of cringe and you say, oh, no, you know, the the mirror wasn't uh, properly manufactured. And that caused some of Hubble's early issues, which were then majestically, frankly, corrected um, to give us the images we have now. But, yeah, to me, you know, thinking back, uh, it's so astrophysics is still kind of an interest and, and hobby of mine. So I think broadly speaking, that's that's definitely uh, on the top of my list. And I think. Um, for our industry, getting uh, healthcare to a point where it's much more equitable um, for everybody, and getting clinical trials back on track to where you know things fell off a cliff during the pandemic timeframe, to me is is important. And I know that officially no one's called off the pandemic, which is up to the WHO to do. But um, you know, a lot of people are living now as though uh, the pandemic is over. And you know, my hope for our industry is just that. What that begets is, um, you know, clinical trials continuing to resume in earnest to where they were prior to when all this happened so that everything that was put on hold and new developments that we don't even know about yet can continue on so that our healthcare future is better than uh, better than it otherwise would be because of the R&D innovation. Mm. Um, yeah, I um I had somebody who was talking about uh, clinical trials and I hadn't thought about how significantly they were affected, particularly early stages, right? Um, yeah. During, during the pandemic. Um, what is, what is a book that spoke to you? you uh, can't say Peter Drucker. No, no. Um, let me think recently. Uh, 
probably probably super forecasting is one that I thought a lot about. So it's by Gardner and Tetlock. And the idea, I think the subtitle is The Art and Science of Prediction. But the idea is that there are, are ways to to make better use of data to make better predictions. And the authors kind of argue for this point that there are super forecasters in society and then there are those who aren't. And they kind of give you the rubric for what makes a good or what makes a super forecaster. Um, and in basically in, in all cases, the short story is continually refining your mental models, your forecast models with new fresh data is what makes people better able to make more accurate forecasts. And it sounds pretty basic, but, you know, they spend a couple or a few hundred pages going into it. And uh, to me, it, it's interesting because then I take some of the information from that book and I think how it ties back to our industry and, you know, continually refining your models to make better predictions and forecasting to me seems a lot like Bayesian inference. And there are a lot of companies who are really trying to do Bayesian analysis more so than classical statistical approaches for their clinical trials. And it remains to be seen if those will be broadly accepted by the FDA and other regulatory agencies. But it's really a, a almost totally different way of approaching statistical inference, you know, analysis of clinical trial data, where in some cases you might have had a drug or device that failed a trial, meaning failed right primary outcomes, failed secondary outcomes, but then you analyze it in a different way, and the same data set could show you that actually it should have passed or should have been approved, or vice versa. We could have fooled ourselves into thinking that uh, it passed when it really should have failed. Yeah, it's like type 1, type 2 error. Interesting. Yes. Um, okay, very good. Um, where can people reach you, Ben? I would say probably the easiest way is to uh, shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Well, thank you for coming on to the show. It's an honor to meet you. Pleasure. Thank you, Subi. All right. I'm going to stop uh, recording. And we went over. Thank you for listening to the Combinate podcast. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please share. Please send any feedback you have to combinatepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again.